0: worship this morning. Each month we have a closing song, a closing hymn, a closing theme for the month. And so for the month of December, that is our song. And as we've been doing recently, we'll have either the young people or the worship team bring that before us. So I hope you're listening carefully. We'll be singing that at the end of the service. And a joy has dawned. If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 11. Let's turn in God's Word together and continue our study and hear from the Word of the Lord this morning. We're turning together to Matthew chapter 11 in our verses of scripture that we'll focus on this morning are verses one through six, verses one through six. We've been looking in the context of Matthew's gospel where Jesus has been preparing his disciples to go out and to do ministry. He's been preparing them, he's been teaching them, he's been instructing them as we'll see more of here in a moment this morning. But he is preparing them to go out and to preach the message of the kingdom to heal the sick, to cast out demons out of those who are demon-possessed, and to preach the good news of the gospel to those who will hear it specifically to the poor. But as we look into God's Word, we're finding our place in Matthew chapter 11, verses 1-6, through 6. and what we have here is a transition passage of moving from all that Jesus has been doing to now what is next for Jesus, what does Jesus do next, now that we know the disciples are going out in the name of Christ, in his authority and obeying his mission, if you will, being commissioned by him. We now see what Jesus is doing, and now Matthew brings into play a side story, if you will. Here's an account of what is taking place with John the Baptist. And so we'll look there in God's Word. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear." The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. For just a little bit of background, I want you to hold your finger right here in God's Word and go back to Matthew 3 very quickly with me, just a few pages back, and note in God's Word where we last saw John the Baptist in the Scriptures. In Matthew 3, we see here that. Matthew reveals to us that John the Baptist is preaching. Matthew 3 verse 1, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and his message was this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 4, Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was wild honey and locusts. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, And all the region around the Jordan would go out to him, went out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now we saw what came after John. John is the forerunner. He is the herald of the king. Jesus, of course, is the king. Notice what we see is coming next in this passage, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you are coming to me. So he's truly perplexed. He recognizes who Jesus is. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now we notice in this text that what is next for John, if you'll look over in chapter 4, verse 12, to lay all this together. John baptizes Jesus. Immediately Jesus is taken and tested in the wilderness by the Spirit of God and by Satan himself. But then in the next transition is found in verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, and he continued to preach. Verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at, at hand. Verse 12, we see there that now Jesus heard that John had been put into prison. We're going to see more about John and His imprisonment in Matthew chapter 14 in the coming future, we will touch on it some today. But from this moment, John's ministry was one of being a bold declarer for the King of kings the Lord of lords. His job was to preach the message of the kingdom, repentance from sin, turn in faith to trust in the Messiah who is coming, will come, to save his people from their sins. And then, suddenly, Matthew doesn't give a lot of detail, he'll give it later, John is in prison for simply being faithful to what God had called him to do. We don't hear anything else from him uh, in that passage. John is having a crisis moment, if you will. You could say a moment of, I don't know if it's depression, but but a dark night of the soul. In fact, our sermon title this morning is Dealing with Doubt. Dealing with Doubt. Have you ever dealt with doubt? And if you're a true Christian, I'm going to go ahead and answer that for you. The answer is, yes, you have. You say, well, whoa, what a bold statement, LaGrange. Well, I'll tell you this. If you have no true faith, Satan has no reason to attack you. If you have true saving faith and you're resting in Christ and Christ alone, friends, in this journey of life, you will have moments. You will have seasons. You will have situations that rattle you, that really cause you to look and to test your faith. It's what we see in the scriptures, it's what we see in our lives. lives is con- our lives are constantly changing. And what we see here in Matthew 11 is the phrase made true that the very best of men are still men at their very best. We find that to be true in our lives. Maybe it was the person who led us to faith in Christ and you, they discipled you and the closer you got to them, the more problems you began to see. And see, that's the problem. The closer we get to humans, the closer we get to God's messengers, the closer we know people, the more faults we come in contact with. And oftentimes we find that even when we look at men like a man like John the Baptist, he is still a man. He is frail dust at his very best, saved by grace, led of the spirit. But yet we find him in a moment that is where he is not his best. In fact, when we look into the Word of God, we find that God uses people differently. In fact, some are more fruitful than others. For example, Matthew 13, 3, the parable of the sower and the soils. The Word of God makes clear that some will have a fruitful ministry in this life, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. And sometimes those differences, those trials, the man who has a ministry, say, of 30-fold and the man who has a ministry of 100-fold, the man who has a ministry of 30-fold looks at the other man and says, well, I, his ministry is maybe being more blessed than mine is. His preaching is being more blessed than mine is. His, his, there's more visible fruit to bear. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. We don't know all the reasons of why John the Baptist, we have some hints here in the text of why he's having a season of, of doubt. A moment of doubt. But the bottom line is this. He comes to Jesus in the only way he can. Here in our text, he sends his disciples. He sends messengers to Jesus to ask them the question. And what we find is that Jesus pays tribute. In fact, the highest tribute that can be given uh, to this redeemed sinner. Verse 11 of our text, going back Matthew chapter 11. Verse 11, Surely I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist. That's quite a tribute, isn't it? This high praise from the King of Kings. In fact, Jesus doesn't say this about anyone else, but yet notice in the text, yet, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John is great, Jesus is saying, but John is living in a different era than we are. John is on the front side of the cross. In fact, John is the last of the Old Testament of prophets. His message is one of looking forward, whereas our message, even extending to today, is one of looking backwards. Look at what Jesus has done. Look at how he came as we celebrate this Christmas season. We sing about the coming of Christ. In fact, you could say his first advent of when he came to his people. John was on the front side of that. He's on the other side of the cross telling the people to look for the coming of the Messiah, to look for he who would come, to turn from their sins and to rest in him and him alone. John was great. John was God's chosen messenger. But Jesus makes clear that he was great not only because of his role, but his character. John was a great man. Notice verse 7. And as they departed, Jesus began to say, chapter 11, verse 7, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? Second time he asked this question. A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? Third time, a prophet? Yes, Jesus says, I say to you, and more than a prophet. John was a faithful prophet. This speaks to his character. He fulfilled perfectly what God had called him to do, giving witness even from the womb. And then as he began to speak, when the proper time and the proper moment came, John the Baptist did not fear man. As Proverbs tells us, we're wont to do to fear men is in the sense of a trap. It imprisons us. John was not imprisoned by any fear of man, not even the king. As a matter of fact, that's why he's in prison. So go with me just real quick to Matthew 14. I'm going to just kind of give you the bird's eye view of what is going on with John. He's bold. He's filled with character. He fears God. And what does he have to show for it? Well, this leads to why he's having doubt. At times, ministry is hard. And the reality is when God calls us to serve him, he determines what that is. For some, that's to be killed and martyred on the mission field. For others, it's to be faithful in the message decade after decade with seemingly no problems in their ministry. All of that is according to the God, of God's chosen purposes and his will. Matthew 14, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison. This is commenting, if you will, going back to Matthew 4. This is why he's in prison. He put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, verse 4, It is not lawful for you to have her. What a bold man. John the Baptist looked at at the king of the day and said, You're in sin. You're living in sin. And you need to turn and repent of your sins. And what does he have to receive for it? Well, certainly, John the Baptist is not preaching the message. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, is he? And by the way, that's not what happens to John the Baptist. This is his reward for standing with Jesus. This is what Jesus has told us would happen. Matthew chapter 10, when he's preparing his apostles to go and to teach and to serve for the King of Kings, for the Lord God. And he tells them, as we've been looking at it the last number of weeks, this is what you can expect. And it's exactly what happens to John the Baptist. John did not fear the king. John the Baptist was a man of truth. He was a man of truth. And so because of that boldness in declaring the truth, when we see this very vulnerable moment of questioning, it's stunning. It's sudden to us. Now, as we come to Matthew chapter 11, this is a transition text that we find here in our passage. Up until now, Jesus has been pointing us to uh, the fact that he's training his disciples. Matthew has been pointing us to the work of the king. Scene after scene, he's showing us who Jesus is and the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. But in our text here in Matthew chapter 11, and as we move into chapters 11 and 12, there is a theme in these next two chapters, and the theme is one of doubt, one of questioning. The response that we see that men give to the teaching ministry of Jesus and even to the miracles of Jesus. This is going to be a theme that Matthew begins to turn to. But what we do not expect that is that it comes from the voice declaring the voice of one in the wilderness, declaring make straight the paths of the king, prepare the way of the Lord. Here we find him in a low moment. And by the way, as we read the scriptures, as we study the word of God, friends, let me just tell you, this is a, an assurance of the inspiration of the Bible. God's word shows us not only the men he uses at their highest moments, but person after person. In fact, there's probably, very, there's probably only two or three people in all of the Bible where the scripture does not name something of, of sinfulness about the person or a mistake or a, uh, an aspect of failure about the person. All the people that God uses are simply clay pots who have cracks all over and God by his grace comes along and pours out his grace. He fills that vessel, gives him the treasure of the gospel by his grace and his spirit. He continues to sanctify and mold them into the image of Christ. And that's what we find here, a low moment for this messenger that was to uphold Jesus. And here we find that it is Jesus who upholds the messenger. One pastor said this, Jesus is not who he is because John says so. John 1, Matthew 3. Jesus is who he is because he is who he is. He's God. John did not make Jesus. Jesus made John. It's a good thought, amen? And oftentimes we get so stuck in our own self-sufficiency, God empowers us and God blesses our ministry, and we start flying high. Then the realities of life take place and we realize how frail we are. And even though John was the herald of Jesus, he did not make Jesus who he was. Jesus is God. And we find even here that Jesus upholds John. Behold the singular greatness of Jesus that we see here in this text. And friends, I'm going to tell you, all of us who've been born again, we will experience similar moments in our own life and ministry. We will be comforted by the fact that when we're at our very worst, no, we don't lose our salvation, but he saves us, he sustains us, and he keeps us as his children, as his disciples, all the way to the last. If he did not, friends, we would be lost. John six thirty nine. this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me, that I should lose nothing, but should raise them up at the last day. John ten twenty eight. he says, I give my sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand, not even them in their moments of doubt and struggle. Now what we find here in this text is that Jesus upholds John, and we're gonna kind of frame our thoughts this morning, verses one through six around four R's. Number one, the rhythm of Christ, you could say the ministry rhythm of Christ. Number Number two, the reason for John's doubt. Number three, the remedy. And number four, the rebuke that Jesus gives. Doubt is real. Doubt comes to all of us. Doubt happens, but yet there is still a rebuke for doubt when it comes. And we'll see that here in our text, a loving rebuke that Jesus gives. First of all, number one, the rhythm of Christ that we see here in the text. And we're gonna take some moments here to break this down. The rhythm of Christ, verse one, in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, We see what Jesus gives to the church as in the church's commission to make disciples is what Christ is continually doing all throughout the gospel of Matthew to witness the gospel, to lead others to Christ, to train them up in maturity in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to make disciples and then train them to make disciples. That's what we see beginning in verse 1. Look with me in the text. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples, this is the initial training, that he departed from that place to teach and to preach in their cities. What Jesus is doing here, lest we overlook it glibly, is the model of discipleship, and it's relatively simple. We could say like this, how did Jesus make disciples? Well, it's much like what Paul instructed Timothy to do in 2 Timothy 2 verse 1. You, therefore, Timothy, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, And the things that you have heard from me, among many witnesses, commit these things to faithful men who will also be able to teach others as well. When we look into Matthew's gospel and see that Jesus' rhythm, this is his normal rhythm in a transition text. Regularly, Matthew points us to the teaching, preaching, instructing ministry of Christ. In our text, we see a couple of things that we can follow through in our own discipleship. We see there is a season of instruction. That's what we've seen in Matthew 10 up until this point. There is modeling, there is separation, and then there's also evaluation, which we'll put together here in just a moment. A season of instruction, modeling, separation, and evaluation. First of all, that subpoint, just the instruction that we see Jesus continually doing. The Holy Spirit is always at work, we're reminded. Only He can convert. But what we find here is that Jesus is continually instructing His disciples in the things of the truth. There is a beginning and there is an end. It doesn't, you could say it like this, expository preaching and teaching is not the end in and of itself. Uh, This worship service is not the end of itself. Sunday school classes and small groups are not the end of themselves. All of these things are simply a means to an end. What we find in this context of the greater passage, Matthew 10, verses 1 through 4, if you remember, Jesus called these apostles to himself. He has instructed them, He has taught them, and now He has sent them out. Verse 1, chapter 11, And it came to pass, Jesus finished commanding or teaching His twelve disciples. This word here in our text means to teach by arranging in order. When Jesus had finished His instruction, uh, this word is a systemic or systematic teaching. So when he was done with this season of instruction, when he had set a foundation in order and an arrangement for his disciples, when he had finished, these things must come to pass. In other words, there comes a point where we need to go do the ministry. The first thing we see in Jesus' discipleship process and flow is a season of instruction. It reminds us this is what we're doing here, church. We're teaching and preaching the word of God. In our small group discipleship times or Sunday school times, that's exactly what is taking place. We come to receive the instruction. But then we all of that comes to an end, and then we go out and are faithful to the message that we have heard. We have a heart that intends to obey. Matthew Henry says this on this text. He says, "The disciples were trained up by degrees for their work." And this is exactly what is happening in the church as well. We gather and we're trained up by degrees for the work of the ministry. So there's instruction. This is the rhythm of Jesus. Secondly, in verse 1, we see there is modeling that, he, that takes place. The text tells us that Jesus himself departed from that place. He sends off his disciples, and then he himself goes to continue to teach and preach in their cities. In other words, up until this point, Jesus has been singularly teaching and preaching. Jesus at the beginning of Matthew 10 calls the apostles to himself, trains and instructs them, but now their time is to go forth. And now Jesus goes and does the same thing. Are you following what's happening here in the text? Now it is being quadrupled. The effect is is being magnified, is being multiplied. They are teaching and preaching. Now Jesus is teaching and preaching. Unless you think this is overly simplistic this morning, this is Jesus' plan for reaching the world. (laughs) This is how we make this is why we're still here, church. As we'll come to in just a moment, we have to continually ask ourselves, are we doing this as well? Are we fulfilling the Great Commission? Are we following Jesus' pattern? Or to ask the question, who's discipling me and who am I discipling? And have I reached the point in this training relationship to where they can stand on their own two feet and go and make disciples as well? This is what we see here in the natural ministry rhythm Jesus. In fact, Luke records in Acts 1 verse 1, he records for us, he says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, so Luke is speaking to an individual of why he's writing this book, and he says, of all that Jesus, notice here, began both to do and to teach. Jesus was not simply an instructor, but he himself did what he taught. He himself did what he trained them to do. You could say it like this, he modeled our second thought there, he modeled for the disciples what it was he expected. Here's how you teach. Here's how you serve. Here's how you cast out demons. Here's how you heal the lame. Here's how you feed the sick. Here's how you do ministry in the name of the Father. Here is the message. Be faithful to the message. Don't be surprised when they don't like the message. And we'll convene in a little bit and gather and compare notes. And we will continue to do this again. And more instruction will then By the way, if you're listening carefully, this is Leadership 101. Parents, this is Parenting 101. All of us, to the measure of influence that we have, this is Leadership, Parenting, Instruction, Discipleship, Ministry 101. This is not one of the things of the church. This is the thing. This is the main thing. This is it. This is the plan. This is the great commission that God has called us to so we consider this second subpoint this natural ministry rhythm of Jesus not only to instruct but then to model we find that it is important that we ourselves lead and teach by example we lead and teach by example by modeling in front of the disciple that we're seeking to tra- reach for Christ and to train for Christ what it looks like to have a dynamic relationship with Christ as we pray together we strengthen each other we encourage one another and that process is to continue as the great commission Advances. Notice what Jesus does not do. Jesus does not simply bring these men to himself and keep them to himself. He sends them out. Expository preaching is great, but it's not the end, it's the means to the end. He sends them out to go take what they have heard and to duplicate it in others, to reach others for the kingdom of God. Matthew Henry, again, says this, How unlikely are they to Christ who yoke others only that they themselves might be idle. So here he says how unlikely it is that there are those who make disciples and yet they don't do anything after that. Note the increase in the multitude of laborers in the Lord's work should be made not an excuse for our negligence, but an encouragement to our diligence. The more busy others are, the more busy we should be and all little enough so that much work there is to be done. Amen? This is the process of discipleship. This is the process of pastoral ministry that I read just a moment ago that Paul tells Timothy to do. Timothy constantly be instructing and teaching other men also. And then retreat from that. If everything is centered upon you and your personality and your person, you're building a man-centered kingdom, Timothy. That's not the plan of God. The kingdom that we are building is Christ, for He will build His church, and we are simply the channels. We are simply those who point the way to Jesus. So, instruction and modeling, and by the way, just a quick Old Testament reference: Deuteronomy six, six through seven. This is exactly what God instructs fathers. By the way, I have application for us this morning to be doing as well. Deuteronomy 6, 6-7, and these words, which this is Moses speaking, speaking uh, giving this to the, of the Lord to the children of Israel, speaking for God, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You instruct, you teach, you model, and you live it out in the everyday realms of life. Here's the key. We cannot be those who simply instruct church, but we are those who follow up our instruction with modeling the cross-centered life, modeling a life that is rooted in the cross of Christ, showing daily dependence upon Him, allowing people to get close enough to see that we are warts and all, that we are not the end, we are not the, me, or we are not the message, but Christ is the message. And if you can see Christ in me, then that's what you need to follow. Anything else that you see in my life that is not of Christ, ignore it and forgive me for it. In any way that I'm a stumbling block to you, children or friend or or whatever, church, those types of things, that's our message. But our gospel and our discipleship must have, as D.L. Moody said, shoe leather, practicality to it. Number one, the rhythm of Jesus, we see his model was to turning into instruction, instruction. Then to modeling, but notice it comes to an end. There is a shelf life to it. Number three in verse one, there's a separation. The text tells us he departed from that place. The instruction has ended and the presence of Jesus leaves. He commissions them to go and then he goes a different direction, committing them to the care of the Father. Now, Jesus knows his time is short. Here we see Jesus putting the pedal to the metal. He is showing them, now it's time for you to go try your wings. Now is the time for you to take what you have learned and to go earn your stripes, if you will. But know this, the promise we have is the comforting power and leading of the Holy Spirit. So we think about Jesus sending us forth into the ministry, serving for him. We may feel alone, but friends, you're never alone. Behold, I'm with you always. Matthew 28, he says, even to the end of the earth. In our neighborhood, we have... Uh, a couple of streets over on the backside of a neighborhood where we live, there's this massive tree on a hill. And depending on what the season is, there is the, the eagles will come and they prepare this massive nest. I think this is year three. They're anticipating this, this eagle family to have another family and to have little eaglets and that type of thing. And as we know, the process of that is that's a fun process to watch. You can hear them if you take these walks. You can hear these little baby birds. You can't see them because the, the, the nest is massive it's it's just absolutely you could probably stand in it and not see over the top of it how big this nest is but you can hear them and in our little neighborhood thread online they'll post pictures the neighbors will say the baby eaglets they name them I think last year's was justice and liberty I don't know what it's going to be this year but they name them and they'll give you updates and so we can all watch vicariously these little eaglets grow until a certain point and then we all know what comes next don't we At a certain point, as God has given that nature to that mother and father, they begin to break up the nest. That nest begins to become uncomfortable. That nest is no longer that safe, warm place it's supposed to be because there is more for these eaglets than this. This is what we're talking about. And Jesus says, listen, guys, I love you, and I wish we could just sing kumbaya around the campfire because we love that. We love that fellowship moment, that koinonia, but this is not why we're here. The reason we're here is so that you go and make disciples and that you continue to carry out the will of the Father because there's going to come a point where I'm not with you any longer. In fact, Mark 6 verse 12 gives commentary in a parallel passage on this. It reminds us, he says, so they went out and preached that people should repent, speaking of the disciples, and they cast out many demons and they anointed with oil many who were sick and they healed them. Luke chapter 9 gives his commentary as well. He says, and they departed and they went through towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And I was just thinking what it would have been like to be those guys going out for the first time, experiencing the anointing power of the Holy Spirit, going out in obedience to the Father and obedience to Christ and experiencing what that was like for the very first time, the first missions trip, the first gospel preaching and teaching missions trip. To a reminder to us as Jesus has already instructed that the disciple is not above his master. And as they go out in obedience to the gospel, teaching and preaching, following the Lord's command, they will face the same responses that Jesus himself did as well. Lastly, a fourth small point I want us to notice here is evaluation. And Mark is the one who gives us this thought in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. So, we think about this model, this rhythm of ministry rhythm of Jesus. There's instruction, there's modeling, there's separation, but then there's evaluation. And Mark chapter 6, verse 30 tells us that the apostles then gathered back to Jesus and told him all things. They're giving to him a report, an account of this journey, this mission trip, both what they had done and what they had taught, basically how it went. And he exalts with them, he instructs them, he edifies them. He helps them in their confusion. They did exactly as Jesus had modeled. They both did and taught just like Acts 1-1 and Matthew 11 here tells us. There's an evaluation period. And friends, it's a reminder for all of us the healthiness of accountability and evaluation and ultimately the great day of accountability and the great day of evaluation. Friends, all of us will stand before the Lord in the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of our opportunities for Christ. We will give an account of both things done and not done. And I think for most of us, the great day of shame, you could say, would be simply this in the sense of the disappointment that we'll have is is all the times to speak for Christ and yet fear of man had our hearts more than fear of God. Opportunities that God sent our way. And I think oftentimes we think romantically, like John the Baptist maybe is here in this text, about what God's will is and what ministry is. We think of it as all warm cups of coffee in the coffee shop and around the fire and that's it We think of discipleship like that. But friends, discipleship may include that, but it is so much more than that. We need Jesus to help us. We need to come and regularly come before the word of God and confess our sins and confess opportunities that we have taken for him and say, Lord, would you take that and use that for your glory, but also confess opportunities given that we did not pursue because the fear of man came into our hearts. And I think at times we have this romantic lens of the way it's all supposed to look like, and yet Jesus, every single day, the Holy Spirit of God is sending people into our path. People at the store, people at the gas, gas pump. Yesterday I started talking to a lady at the gas pump, and we, were, we just started talking about how slow this thing was. And uh, in context of the sermon, you just feel the nudging of the Holy Spirit. LaGran, this is one of those conversations you planned about reminding Grace Church about. Uh, tomorrow morning, this is the day before. And by the way, there's some of these pumps in town, you go to them, it's the slowest. I'm, I'm, you think I'm kidding, I'm not kidding. It's like you can literally, it's like watching paint dry. But I find myself standing there, and you're thinking, God, give me mission, give me. And so we think of it romantically, but it could be just like, hey, it's cold out here, isn't it? I'm, yeah, you know, slowest pumps in town, no doubt, yeah. And then you start up a conversation. What do you do? That's always where it goes, well, I'm a pastor. People start getting jittery when they find out you're a pastor. <laughs> So I just go straight to the most practical thing you could do is, well, you know what, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? You know what, can I tell you something? Very few people will say, don't pray for me. Just get to the heart of the matter. We got seconds here, right? We're going to give account not for the results. Listen here. We're going to give an account for the opportunity. We're going to give an account for obedience. And you and I are thinking romantically about all of it. Like it's supposed to look like this and it's supposed to be like this. And Jesus just wants you to be faithful, to be ready. His Spirit will lead you. His Spirit will give you the words to speak. His Spirit will equip you and guide you in those very moments. In fact, that's where you'll find your faith is strengthened. This is the natural, normal rhythm of Jesus. And church, may it be our rhythm as well. This morning, we are receiving instruction. But as we leave this place, it's more than this. And if you'll just get past this one thing, we will be leaps and bounds beyond most of the American church today. Simply not those who gather and hear, but those that hear to go forth and obey. This is not a checkoff on our calendar. Eat fried chicken today. Worship with the people of God today. And that's on Sunday. No, no, no. But we are equipped today to go out and model. To go out and reach. To go out and serve. To come back and to give an evaluation. So on Wednesday when we come back together, if those of us who can, we start having conversations and we say, how's your week gone so far? You know, it's gone well, or it hasn't gone well. Well, why? And we start these conversations, but there's accountability, there's evaluation. How are you doing spiritually? You know, I'm not doing great. Or you know what? I'm doing really good. This is what God's been teaching me. I've been working through this. This has been struggle. I've been this trial, this person, whatever. God's been helping me. He's given me a love here. And we this is called discipleship community. This is this is what it is. But it leads us secondly, very quickly, to the reason. Not only the rhythm of Jesus, but the reason for John's doubt in verses 2-3. We don't know all that's in John's heart and mind, but what we do know is that doubt comes. And when it comes, at times it can be crushing. Verse 2, And when John had heard in the prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Wait. Here is the messenger who told all who could hear, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And yet he says, Are you the coming one? Now there's a lot of background here that I will not take the time to go into talking about the, the historical Jewish mindset. But to summarize it, and many in the Jewish mindset believe that the coming Messiah would have a kingdom and there would be preparers of the way. And there would be, There is a multifaceted process. That's why John says here are you the coming one or do we wait for another like in other words John is struggling he's thinking before the cross that jewish mindset we know the messiah is coming i have declared and heralded you as the coming but i'm starting to have a moment of doubt are you truly the messiah or is there one are you the one before the messiah John's not really struggling in the fullest extent of it but yet he's wavering he's in a moment of trial and you could say wait a second John the Baptist is not supposed to doubt. He's the boldest, bravest man in the Bible. But obviously, he's struggling. Don't act like you've never struggled either. Don't act like you've never had a moment where you wonder, what is this faith thing all about? Do not act like church. You've never had a moment where you wonder as you as you're sharing the gospel and you're talking about faith and you're talking about sin and you're talking about the gospel you're talking about the resurrection, and you have someone vehemently deny the resurrection, vehemently deny the gospel. This is what happens when you share the gospel. And in the hidden man of your heart, you're gonna start saying, Okay, wait a second. Okay, he's coming from a complete place of unbelief. How do I help him to see? How do I and we we feel our frailty, we feel our struggle, and we go back and we reflect upon that, and we get in the nuts and bolts of it, and we can begin to sense doubt coming into our hearts, and we say, God, would you help me? God, would you strengthen me? As the disciples will say in another passage, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Like in other words, God, we're with you, but yet we feel this pull, we feel this struggle, we feel this tension of unbelief, and we're not proud of it. Now it's here, it's amazing that we see the dovetailing of our study through Jude, isn't it? And our study here, this practical account of John the Baptist, where we're studying to the fuller extent of the, the, the depravity of apostasy, those who are fully aware of the truth, and yet they fully turn their back on the truth. A full abandoning, if you will. It's not doubt, it's the full end of that scale, it's the full end of that road. It's where doubt will lead, and they turn their back on the truth of Scripture. Real quick, the, the reason for John's doubt, Well, one thing we know for sure is that suffering can cause doubt. John here is in prison. In fact, he's in the most well-known prison of the day. John's gospel records for us he's in a citadel on the, sea, on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And experts tell us that this particular prison was at the bottom of the citadel and is literally a, a hole in the ground, in the darkness, in the dungeon. Remember, this is Matthew chapter 3, we're told, and John was put in prison. There's been a whole lot going on here. Jesus is teaching and preaching. He's calling his disciples. He's preparing his disciples. And John is faithfully in that prison, Alone, in the dark, by himself. Friends, we we all know what a taste of depression can be like. Moments of lowness of soul, dark nights of soul. For some, it's just simply a change of place can give you a change of perspective, and it's not for the better, it's for the worse. Sometimes you forget about how much you're dependent upon the niceties and the luxuries of, of uh, Rome County, Tennessee and the, the familiar smells and the familiar rhythms. You just go get on a plane and go to the third world and you'll find out real quick when physical sickness hits your body. The smells are different. The people are different. The roads are different. And you can feel yourself with having a disorientating of life and perspective and you say, oh, God, help me. This is I just don't feel right. I don't I don't I don't feel spirit filled and everything's weird and everything's different. We have those moments. We have those moments in ministry where things are tense and things are difficult. We're shaken, you could say. Well, for John, his circumstances definitely had changed. Just think about it practically. John was a man of the outdoors, wasn't he? He's used to being in the wilderness. If ever there was an outdoorsy type, it was John. And here he's in the most confined, dark space that they can find. He is suffering. He's questioning, but we admire John in that he sends to Jesus. John sends word to Jesus. John comes to Jesus. He comes to the right source with his doubts, you could say. He does not languish alone. He does not grow hard-hearted in unbelief. He does not grow secure in his doubt. Yes, he's suffering. Suffering can bring about doubt, and yet he comes to the right source. A second reason for John's doubt possibly could be, would be unmet expectations or unrealistic expectation. Now, I think the most fundamental problem, just to reduce all of the background text and understanding of the Jewish mindset that we have on John the Baptist is simply this. John the Baptist knew the Messiah was coming, but John the Baptist did not fully understand in his Old Testament mindset of the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. If you hear what John the Baptist says, and the message that John the Baptist preached was one of the fact that the lion is here. And what John the Baptist was missing was the fact that the sacrificial lamb is here first. So the fact, he knows the Messiah is coming, but in his mindset, he's thinking that the kingdom is to be established in the here and now. Judgment is coming in the here and now. The king is setting up his kingdom. Why isn't he reigning? And I think John the Baptist is sitting in his dark night of the soul and he's hearing word about what Jesus is preaching. He's like, yeah, that sounds right. It is right. But yet the timeline is completely not helping him. He's struggling. And he wonders why Jesus is not building his kingdom in the here and now. And that's why he says, would you help us to know if there is another? Jesus, confirm for me. Assure me. Help me to know you are who you say you are. John had already preached Jesus in John chapter three verse 12, talking about his fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his weed into the garner, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. But the thing is is that that time is not yet here. And so he sees this rhythm of Jesus, one of instruction, one of modeling, one of separation, and one of evaluating. and it makes you wonder, of personality differences, if you wonders, Jesus, what are you doing? So he sends the message to Jesus. Thirdly, we see not only the reason for his doubt, but the remedy. The remedy. Look with me back in Matthew 11 at his text, at this text, as we look into the Word of God. Matthew 11. We see that the remedy that Jesus gives is one of assurance and patience. Notice what he says, Jesus answered and said to them, these men who come, two of John's disciples. Verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. John, be patient. Now notice the proof that Jesus gives. Verses 5 and 6. The blind see. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached unto them. These are miracles that only the one that you prophesied and foretold could perform, John. Yes, I am he. I am the Messiah. Look with me. Turn over to Luke 4, verse 17, just briefly. Luke 4, verse 17. These are the miracles that only the Messiah could come. In fact, this is Jesus' thrust and message as well. Luke chapter 4 very quickly. Notice verse 16, we'll begin there. So Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. What was it that he read? He was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place back in Isaiah where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. By the way, Jesus' signaling of this message would have been a, plucked a key heartstring to John the Baptist. The Pharisees had built up a whole religion and theology and philosophy around the rich. And to make a key distinction here, one of, the, one of the aspects of the preaching of the Messiah would simply be that he ministered to the poor, did not overlook the poor like the religious establishment did in his day. That line would have struck a chord with John the Baptist as he himself was in the wilderness, somebody who was crude, if you will, the basic salt of the earth. He has sent me, Jesus prophesied, reading this Isaiah's prophecy, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then Jesus closed the book and gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus assures by his life and message and ministry. Yes, John, I am he that you have foretold. I am the promised one. I am the Messiah. And the works that I do, the message that I preach, all give witness to this reality. And then lastly, notice the rebuke. Of doubt, Jesus does not overlook John's crisis of the soul. Jesus does not overlook this. Verse 6, we see the phrase Jesus gives, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. John, you wouldn't be hearing the teaching that I'm giving these disciples right here that I'm sending out as apostles, but John, let me remind you, blessed are you when you suffer the same condition that I, your Lord and Master, model for you. We all know the end of this story. Jesus is not living a life of ease. Jesus knows how to taste of suffering. Jesus knows the plan of the Father. And Jesus reminds John in this rebuke, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. By the way, this is exactly what John needed. Because John doesn't forsake, John doesn't leave, John doesn't recant. John will lose his head for the sake of the king. John will lose his head for the sake of the gospel. And John proudly, boldly, in strong faith does it for the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Well, an unusual text this morning, a transitional text as we consider this changing from the instruction of Jesus and the modeling of Jesus, moving into this moment of doubt that we see in the life of John the Baptist. As we close our thoughts this morning, I simply want to encourage you in the Lord. Many of you have struggled, are struggling maybe even now. All of us have had crisis moments, circumstances that are crushing, even those things that produce what we would call moments of doubt, in our life. And I want to tell you two things very quickly this morning. Number one, doubt happens, or you could say doubt is normal. But secondly, take your doubts to Christ. Run to Christ with your question, run to Christ with your concerns. God's Word and Christ Himself are more than sufficient to answer your questions, to help you in this journey of grace. It's a long journey, isn't it? Many of you have come to faith in Christ at a young age and you've lived a long and a full life and you've experienced much and you've seen much. And God could use you to strengthen the faith of a younger person or a younger disciple in the Lord. You've seen and tasted of the goodness of God. We know that God knows that we are his creation. The psalmist says, he knows my frame and knows that I am but dust or dirt. He knows what I'm made up of. And so I want us to close this morning with this Twofold admonition to know that doubt comes to the believer, but yet it is still sin. Repent of it, turn from it, and yet, secondly, run to Christ. Run to Christ with your doubt and receive his word and let his word speak to you and strengthen you. And I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4 as we close this morning. Hebrews chapter 4 and the promise that we have of our great high priest. Who is not removed from us. This Jesus that we see here in Matthew's gospel knows our afflictions and he knows and knows how to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's the key thought here in this closing verse. Hebrews 4, verse 14. The writer of Hebrews says this Remember this, church. We have a compassionate high priest. He knows how to deal with us, he knows how to minister to us. So, seeing then, that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Because of this, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help In our time of need. Your time of need may not be right now or this morning. But friend, trust me. There is coming a moment where you will have a a time of need. And when that time comes, go boldly before His throne of grace. Boldly not because of your own works of righteousness. Not because of your own personality that you're not scared or any of that type of trash. You come boldly at His invitation. You come boldly because Christ is our perfect righteousness. You come boldly to the Heavenly Father who has secured salvation for us. Come boldly to your great high priest who understands what you're going through. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this transition passage in Matthew's Gospel and how much it teaches us. Father, first of all, as a church, we pray that afresh and anew, we are committed to the cause of making disciples. End of story, end of sentence. And I pray that each person here in our church will go home this morning considering and thinking about who am I reaching? Who am I actively seeking to minister to and win to Christ and to train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Father, I pray that Grace Church would grow, continue to grow as a disciple-making church, obeying the Lord's command. Father, thank you for how you have strengthened and sustained us in our past up until this point. But may we be a forward-looking people continuing to look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And even when times of doubt, as we see in John's life, creep in, may we continue to have our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the same source, the author and the finisher of our faith. May we come to the throne of grace boldly, trusting you when these moments come. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, that you hear us time after time when we come to you, repenting and confessing our sins, that you give grace in our times of need. Jesus, thank you. To Christ's name we pray, amen.